Hey everybody, this is Megan Burke, speech-language pathologist in Western Montana and founder of Therapy Insights. And this is the Therapy Insights podcast where we dive into what it means to be a rehabilitation clinician, walking alongside people who are going some of the, through some of the most extraordinary challenges of their lives. In medicine and in society, we fail to recognize that just fixing problems and making them go away is not the only way we can provide help. Empathy is a choice and it's a vulnerable choice because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. As Ram Dass said, when all is said and done, we're really just all walking each other home. The conversation that we have today is with Katrina Makaya, who's a life, grief, and end-of-life coach. And we talk about the human capacity for presence. And this podcast is coming out at a time where um, presence is probably one of the most important things that we have available to us, but also one of the hardest things to access right now. And that is just because we're living in a world full of uncertainty, and with that comes a lot of fear and anxiety about the unknown um, as related to all of the things surrounding the coronavirus. So um, this, this conversation comes at a very timely place in the global conversation that we're having. And I'm really excited to share it with you. And I think it, it also touches on some, some points that I think are worth considering as rehabilitation therapists were or often working in very um, very challenging environments that you know just naturally have a lot of traumatic energy within them and certainly feeling that to an extreme at this point and I think one of the challenges that we all have is trying to find a balance within that where we are continuing to be able to do our jobs, which consist of giving quite a bit of energy and presence to other people. Um, and we can't really do that without being present for ourselves and finding ways to give ourselves grounding and give ourselves energy so that we can continue to do the things that we love to do and that we're passionate about as far as working with and helping others. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. A little bit about Katrina, like I said, she's a life, grief, and end-of-life coach, and after experiencing the death of a close friend, she felt additionally drawn to end-of-life issues and became a hospice volunteer and later a hospice volunteer coordinator and bereavement coordinator. She holds certifications in life coaching by the International Coaching Federation and in grief and end-of-life coaching by Coaching at End-of-Life LLC. She's also a trained facilitator of systemic family constellation work. Coaching and constellation work both help to nurture the seeds of those things that yearn for expression while addressing unhelpful beliefs, limiting perceptions and habits, unexpressed grief, and systemic trauma. Her work is informed by an understanding of the stages and neuroscience of change, the impact of systemic and attachment trauma, and the healing potential of mindfulness, self-acceptance, and deep listening. And we start our conversation 
by touching on um, the difference between a therapist and a coach. Oh, and just a quick note that we had to shift our plans quickly from meeting in person to doing this interview online. So you're going to hear A, my dog trying to join the interview in the background, and a reference to um, Katrina's battery, her laptop battery dying. So just know that that's the context for where those are coming from. Enjoy. Um, I'll start by just saying there's lots of different styles of coaching and uh, coaches that specialize in different areas, relationship coach, business coach, um, uh, spiritual coach. Part of what I do is grief and end-of-life coaching. And so there are, there are certainly differences in how a coach might, might um, treat each of those subjects, as well as differences in the coach's own personal style and the way they were trained. Um, I, I need your graphic skills because I, I drew out a little picture of the difference between these the other day and I thought it captured it really well. So I'll try to describe those pictures. Um, for someone who would just, just go to a counselor, I had a picture of a little a stick figure standing in the, um, the middle of just a big tangly winding line, like a a pile of something and it's on a on a timeline from past to now to future and so this person is standing in this pile of stuff in the past kind of fighting it that would to me represent somebody whose ability to be in the present and and move towards the future is limited by stuff that happened in the past that they're still kind of entangled with that's holding them back. And then the next picture was somebody who might be working with both a counselor and a coach. And that person standing in the now with their body moving towards the future, they're ready to go forward. There's a, a sun on the horizon representing um, the the life that they want in the future. And then there's this tangly mess in the past. And there's kind of a chain that goes from that tangly mess around one of the legs of this person. And their head is turned back looking at that like, come on, you know, I, I want to move forward. I have a vision of where I want to go. But this stuff from my past is still holding me back somehow. So they might be working with a counselor on that stuff from the past while they're working with a coach on envisioning the future that they want and and identifying how they're going to get there, who they're going to be along the way, the steps they're going to take, etc. And then somebody who might find not any real need for working with a counselor but would work with a coach would be somebody who whose tangly mess of the past is quite a distance back and doesn't have any any strong connections to where they are now. So they're feeling free to move forward. They've got energy, they're well-resourced, and they're forming that vision of where they want to go, of filling it out, um, identifying what their strengths are, what their values are, how to take steps forward that are in alignment with those values, how to develop the, the strengths they need that they don't feel like they quite have. Uh, so that would be my description of the difference between counseling and and the generic form of life coaching. Mm -hmm. And then your 
your specialty is end of life coaching, correct? I, I do life coaching, grief coaching, and end of life coaching, and they can uh, they can often intertwine. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> the life coaching that I do, the my ideal client in that world would be somebody who's fairly well resourced. I work better with women than I do men. I relate better with women. So probably a woman who's feeling pretty well resourced, has some good self-care techniques, um, has something inside them that they really want to bring forward, maybe a greater expression of their natural gifts, that kind of thing. In terms of um, grief coaching, that could be somebody who's experienced a significant loss in the way of a death of a loved one. It could be somebody who's experienced the loss of um, a capacity, somebody similar to the clients that you may work with or some of your colleagues may work with. They've been in an accident. They no longer have use of their right arm. They can't keep playing guitar like they used to. So they're grieving the loss of an ability to do something that was really important to them. Somebody um, who's experiencing empty nest where their children have left the home and they're grieving not having their child with them and trying to figure out, well, if I'm not a mom day by day, what am I doing with myself? And then end of life, of course, a lot of those things fit with somebody who's facing end of life. There's a lot of things that they're grieving. Um, whether it's the impending separation between them and their loved ones or the loss of capacity that comes as we, as we near death, not being able to go for a hike anymore, not being able to leave the house anymore, no longer being able to eat your favorite food, no longer being able to share space with somebody you love who lives too far to come to you and you can't go to them, that kind of thing. And then there can also be an element of of actual life coaching where perhaps somebody has a diagnosis of terminal cancer, but they're they're still able to do things. They're still able to um, have meaningful interactions. They're still able to create. They may be thinking about the life they have left and how they want to um, make the most of that, what's most important for them in this limited time that they have. Hmm. So designing a future, but with a sense that that the end of that future is closer than it might be for you or I, Mm -hmm. though none of us really know anyway, but. Right. Right. And I think that it's that uncertainty that is so scary for, for us. And it's also, the loneliness of it and just the acknowledgement that facing our own death or talking about mortality that just has this undertone of loneliness. And I, I love what you wrote and I'm just gonna read the whole thing when you said, in my experience with grief, especially related to death, I've found that one of the most painful and debilitating feelings is that of being alone. Yet while you might wish for someone to be with or lean on, it's not uncommon that friends and family, though well-intentioned, 
may unknowingly collude with our culture's fear of death and grief by trying to fix, comfort, or direct your attention to more, quote, positive things. And I just think that is beautiful, so I wanted to talk about it. And you, it's like there's just this amazing clarity in that about how loneliness and chaos can lead to isolation. And ultimately, all of our journeys into death are done by ourselves. So when you first meet with a client, how do you address this loneliness? Um, I think, and, and this may sound too simplistic, but um, in all of the work that I've done and, and everything that I've studied related to coaching or counseling or end-of-life care, I think presence is what's, what's really needed. Presence is what gives relief to that sense of loneliness. And obviously, it's, it doesn't mean presence of my body, because a person can be surrounded by friends and family, like, like that piece that you quoted says, and still feel incredibly lonely, because they are not comfortable with the fact that this person is dying there's unresolved grief for them. You know, they they suffer from what most of us do living in a culture like ours where we just, we don't have a comfort with death because it's such a peripheral topic. Um, so my intention when I'm with any client, whether it's a life coaching client or a grief coaching or someone at end of life or if I'm acting in the role of a hospice volunteer visiting somebody, my intention is to put my stuff at the door, leave it at the door before I come in and just be with that person, to have my energy, my attention, my core self present with them. Um, it's hard to it's not tangible, but I know how it feels because when people have been there for me in that way, um, it's profoundly, uh, it's profoundly real and, and makes such a difference. I, I think I mentioned in my bio about a counselor I had early on who was like that. When I, when I think about who I want to emulate, she's the person that comes to mind. And when I came to see her as a client, she opened the door to her room. We both went in the room. She sat down, and she was just there. She didn't have to say anything, and whatever was in me could come out, whether it was tears or a story of something that just happened to me, whatever. Um, I just felt immediately safe. So addressing that loneliness for me is doing whatever I can to put myself in a place where I'm not pulled away from them in my thoughts, in my emotions, in having to be doing something. And I think we as rehabilitation clinicians are trained 
to fix problems. So if somebody can't swallow, we're going to do some swallowing exercises. If they can't walk, maybe some range of motion exercises. If they can't get out of bed, maybe we'll do some upper body strength. So because there's not a lot of background in our training as far as just having that presence, um, I think a lot of us feel ill-prepared to talk with someone who's been given that life-altering diagnosis and be in the room with somebody who's facing a glioblastoma tumor or Parkinson's or ALS because we want so badly to fix the problem when it's not really a problem that is fixable. So, and then we're also told to stay in our lane and not fill the role of a counselor or coach, but we're also the people who spend absolutely the most time with these people in therapy. We're, we're spending hours with them every week. So when we know that we can't fix it, what else can we offer as another human that is placed alongside them during what may be the most expansive challenge of their lives? Mm-hmm. Well, I, th I think on one hand, you're in an optimal place to make a huge difference. Um, so I'll say more about that. And um, now I lost my train of thought. So I'll say more about that now and we'll see what, what else comes later. Um, I think about in hospice care, the nurse aides are the ones who spend the most time with the patients, uh, aside from friends and family that may be with them. But the aides are the ones that are coming in to change dressings, to wash them, to change their bedding, get them dressed, do their hair. Um, they're not the ones with the most uh, glorified role on the team, and they don't usually come to the team meetings that are held every um, well, we, they have to review every patient's care every couple of weeks. And somebody from each discipline is at those meetings, but usually the nurse aides aren't there. They're with, they're with the patients in the field. And because they're the ones that are with the patients most of the time and their cares with them are so intimate, they're in a position to form some of the closest bonds of anybody in, on the hospice team. Um, and they mean a great deal to the patients because of that. And so um, you, you do have tasks in your roles as rehabilitation therapists that are in the doing realm, but those are sort of like, um, they're a gift in that they're what allow you to spend the amount of time that you do with those people. So they're sort of your your ticket into that that um, space and time with that person who who probably needs the presence of somebody who um, isn't trying to distract them from what's really happening. Somebody who can just be with them. And so I think you don't really need. Um, counseling skills. I don't think you need to add more, yeah, add more tangible skills to your bag in order to be in those situations. I think it comes back more to trusting that who you are at your core and your presence with them 
your goodwill and your compassion and your kindness are what make the difference um, beyond the physical difference of the, the therapy that you're doing with them. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. For sure. And so if there are skills we need, it's the skill of kind of checking in with ourselves to see is there something in me that's getting triggered by this? And I'm sure if, if I walked into a room with somebody who just gotten diagnosed with a geoblastoma, that I would be feeling anxious and inadequate too, um, never having been close to somebody who had that, that diagnosis going on. So it's not that I have to make that anxiety go away in order to be present with that person but that it helps for me to know that that anxiety is there and just kind of say hello to it and then continue being with that person. And I find that, um, I found that in coaching people who are grieving, noticing while I'm with them, the mind, what I call the monkey mind is in there going, oh, you don't know anything about this. You know, you've never experienced suicide in your life or whatever it might be. Um, Am I going to know what to say? Am I going to say the right thing? Am I going to say the wrong thing? One of the key things I learned in, in my training through the grief coaching was that it didn't really matter if that was going on in my head or not in terms of the client's experience of me as a coach. What mattered was whether I was trying to resist that stuff in my head or whether I was able to just say, oh, this is happening for me and not try to push it away. Right. Because it's not That's comfortable so to feel and that anxiety. I wish it weren't there, but mm -hmm. I'm human. And when I'm in a situation that's brand new to me, especially something of that severity, I do feel anxious mm -hmm. and it's okay. Mm -hmm. And when I say oh, it's okay to my anxiety, then I give whomever I'm with also the permission to be with whatever's happening for them. Mm -hmm. Right. And you, you and I exchanged some notes before we recorded this conversation. And like when you kind of touched on what you just said, that hit home for me in a big way because like, I'm a big fan of going to therapy and I started going to therapy a few years ago to work on some some patterns and behaviors that weren't really working for me anymore related to my brother's death and he died when I was in high school and like going through that process and getting in touch with a lot of feelings that I hadn't wanted to really experience like it it transformed the way that I was able to be present like when i think back of how i was showing up in rooms as a speech therapist before i went to therapy there it was just very tumultuous and kind of a turbulent energy and kind of this feeling like well i need i need for them to feel okay <laughs> so that i feel okay and like it's really important to me that they feel grounded because i feel out of control with facing all my own issues that i don't want to face right now so it's so powerful to go through like like you're saying just to be in touch with your own emotions and it's okay that 
they are what they are and it's okay that the other persons are what they are but we're not trying to fix each other we're not trying to ground each other we're just being present with each other right yeah, yeah it seems so simple doesn't it right <laughs> but i i have to work on it not. all the time <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> for sure yeah i have a bit of perfectionism that's that's uh followed me all my life and and so part of that has attached to how I show up as a coach and that I'm only going to be a good enough coach if I don't feel anxiety and if I if I get the sense from them that they're okay with where I'm at and you know just a lot of criteria mm -hmm. that I had set up and or able for me to feel like I was good enough yeah my I went to grad school for speech pathology. And I would say like the overall, like the highest value of the grad school program was being right. Like they, like it was very important that everybody have the right answer. And I just struggled with that. And once I got out of it, it was like this huge relief to know that like there there maybe not really are any right answers and maybe there's evidence and research that shows that one treatment or one path works better for than other people or whatever but like ultimately there is no right answer and like the more that we can be comfortable with the uncertainty of this world that we live in <laughs> and the fact that we don't know everything and we can't solve everything and we can't fix everything like man like the pressure just melts away and obviously as clinicians we want to offer a variety of answers or a variety of paths or a variety of options to consider but ultimately it comes down to everybody's choice and everybody's life is different and the more that we can step away from the one right answer mindset into like a world of possibilities and letting that other person be inside of that world. I think the better healthcare, the better mental health, everything, like we're all just better for living a little bit more in uncertainty. Right. Yeah, there's a, I, when you say that, I feel like if that could, if that could be that we're all okay with there being no right answer, there's just this big, global sigh where we're all relaxed and like oh finally the permission mm -hmm. just to be who I am and trust that's enough right right and this sorry this is getting off topic but this is such an unprecedented time with coronavirus and like one thing that I keep thinking about is there, it's just like we're all together at the same time, which is crazy. Like we're all stuck in this bubble of uncertainty together mm -hmm. for the first time, at least in my lifetime, that happening globally yeah. on a global scale. And it, like everybody's just so uncomfortable with it, which is natural because obviously there's like a life threatening element to it and the economy is failing and there's all these horrible things happening but at the same time I hope that 
as a society and as a world, like it leads to bigger conversations about trauma and about how like everybody goes through really hard things and there's not a hierarchy of trauma. There's not a hierarchy of grief. Like there can be a right. universal understanding of that the fact that life is really hard and really uncertain because we've all been there. We've all been there literally together. <laughs> right. It feels like it it doesn't level the playing field completely because there are some people who are privileged to be able to keep more distance from each other than others, but it levels mm -hmm. the playing field to some degree um, and kind of helps us stop being um, pointing to another group of people as those people, the other people, or no, right. we're all here together, like you say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Any other thoughts on any of those things? <laughs> well, I think the one thing that just comes up is that um, I, I appreciate so much what each of you do as rehabilitation therapists, and I recognize what a beautiful position you're in to share space with people who may be really suffering and have a hard time finding people who can just be with them in that and not try to change or fix. So just, you know, doing the exercises with them and being your compassionate selves is something that they may not be getting anywhere else. So as a coach, you work with people to normalize the experience of grief in the process of dying. And we as a society have still a pretty long journey ahead of us to embrace grief and dying. But we're getting there, like we're seeing all of these changes in the hospice movement within the last few decades and mental health is becoming much more acceptable and accessible. Um, but still death comes as a shock for most of us. And I'm not just talking about like people who die young because that can be a shock, but even many of the older patients that I work with um, can seem very ill-prepared and there's just a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety. And sometimes what seems like just a lack of understanding of what's even happening and then death comes very quickly and then I wonder if they had the chance to say what they wanted to say to people or did, you know, did they have the opportunity to do what they wanted to do before they died? And <clears throat> so in your work, how do you normalize this process and provide the space to grieve and face the reality of death? That's a, that's a big question, and it probably has lots of different answers. Um, one thing that comes to mind is calling it what it is. Um, and this isn't necessarily just when, when with a person, but we live in a culture where we don't say so-and-so died, we say so-and-so passed away, or so-and-so crossed over. Um, 
So I think part of normalizing the experience of death and dying is not being afraid to use those words. And for somebody who is um, terminally ill and who may be realizing that for themselves and be around people who refuse to acknowledge that and, and maybe just keep talking about, well, there's we, we can try some more things. Don't give up on mm -hmm. things yet. Um, you're still living, you know. Um, when when you're with somebody who seems to show some openness to acknowledging what they're going through for what it is, being with them in that and being willing to talk about talk about it using the words that accurately describe it rather than being one more person who is avoiding that topic and trying to get them to hang on to hopes of there being a cure or something changing and not that there's no place for playing a role in somebody's need for hope but Mm -hmm. um, trying to get more comfortable using language that speaks to what's really happening, especially if if the patient seems like they really want that. They want people right. to be acknowledging that. Right. Yeah, and I I've struggled with. Even, like even in the medical community, there's there's different schools of thought that conflict at key times. Like an oncologist generally isn't going to want to refer a patient to a hospice. Sometimes, I mean, it depends on the oncologist and it depends on the situation. But there is this sort of sense of like, well, if we don't talk about death, if we don't talk about the trajectory of this illness, then they might live longer because they're holding on to hope, they're holding on to positivity. We're not sending the message as healthcare providers that, you know, are like preemptively talking about the death before we need to be talking about it. So I don't know, I feel like that's kind of a struggle too, is not stepping on other professionals' toes, but also I think, I think kind of what you're saying is like, you can sense when the person's ready, like when they want to talk about it, you can sense that. And it doesn't, maybe like, it doesn't have to be anything official, like a referral to hospice or anything in that moment, but just in that moment when they want to talk about it, you can be there and be the person that openly talks about it with them. Yeah. And sometimes it's just a matter of a question. What's what's that what's it like for you to to have an illness that you know may be terminal? It's mm -hmm. so I think we sometimes get caught in the feeling of I don't know what to say. I don't have I, I need to have an answer or I need to have a solution or a, a suggestion. I don't know what that is when um, and this this goes for people in all situations in life. I think most of us would rather have someone ask us a question than give us a suggestion. Mm. Right. I know I would. Right. Absolutely. So 
knowing that you don't have to have an idea of what to do um, or what to say any more than just saying, what's that like? Mm -hmm. Or how's your relationship with this illness or whatever? How's that feeling to you today here? This may relate better to one of your other questions, but one thing that can also help to normalize death is to um, in your own relationships with clients and even if there's a way in your in the organization a clinician works for to encourage conversations. Um, there's a there's a website called the Conversation Project dot com I believe it is or maybe it's dot org yeah. that has a lot of tools you can download um, and use with patients or send patients home to use it with their families or give to family members that just help people have start having conversations about what they want for themselves at end of life and that's mm -hmm. something we all, we should all be talking about because none of us know when that might come. Um, there's even a game they've developed. I'm not sure it's that company or another one that it's a deck of cards that all have questions on them that you you play with a group of people. It could be a family or or coworkers, and it just stimulates conversations that help people think through what what's important when like if you if you couldn't toilet yourself would you would you want who would you want in your family to do that for you mm -hmm. and i realized wow i i would not want my dad helping me with that <laughs> right right and these are such important questions i feel like working in skilled nursing has given me a whole new perspective on this like even like when i'm looking at housing options i'm like okay is it wheelchair accessible is there a bathroom on the first floor with the shower that i could get into mm -hmm. <laughs> like you never know what's gonna happen but i like i love those resources and i'll put them in the show notes of just ways to have those conversations that's like and i think sometimes we're afraid to talk about those things like we're gonna jinx it or something but man so powerful and i'm always like so excited to meet families who have had these conversations mm -hmm. and they know what they need and it's just a much more um, peaceful process for everybody right and it and it can lead to advanced directives that are specific enough that when it comes time they really can direct a family so that they know better what you know mom or dad who may be dying what they really want because I think a lot of people get to that place and they don't know their parents well enough to know what they want and they don't know where the advanced directive is or their parents didn't have one. Right, right. And this is, I think I'm just gonna blend a couple questions if that's okay. Mm -hmm. So um, speaking of families, one of the big most popular questions from listeners related around dealing with families and and being in the midst of situations where a family member or multiple family members are either 
aggressively or passive aggressively, however you say that, um, you know, insisting or manipulating things in such a way that maybe their family member will continue to get therapy even if their family member doesn't really want it or you know putting in a feeding tube to prolong somebody's life who maybe is not wanting a feeding tube or not wanting that that kind of quality of life mm-hmm. um but again like it's that drive rather than holding that space for their family member they're trying to fix it and they're trying to get everybody around them to fix it with them um so how do we relate to these family members who are coming in and having these interactions with us many of which are really emotionally draining and challenging for therapists to deal with yeah well i i have some ideas but i have to say right off the bat that i don't that I haven't found myself in that position very much because the coaching that I do is one-on-one, usually not with. Because um, you don't want their families around because then no. it would just become <laughs> like a mix of intentions. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, from my work with hospice, I know that that's, that's so common um, that illness end of life, things like that can bring even more family in than might have been involved anyway. Um, Families are complex, as we all know. Um, People are often estranged from one another. People have unresolved issues from the past. And all of that can come into play. And each person has their own way of coping with the situation, their own emotions, whether they're in touch with them or not. So there's just mm-hmm. potential for so much chaos to be going on within a family system that, one, there's no way to fix that. There's no way to stop people from doing what they're doing. But I think, again, the most powerful thing that any of us can do when we're in a role of helper of whatever type of helper that may be mm-hmm. is to utilize our own self-care strategies to stay connected to ourselves mm-hmm. to stay grounded mm-hmm. um, I'm the memory of a conversation I saw between Eckhart Tolle and Oprah comes to mind and it was a podcast she did with him years ago about one of his books, but there were callers. Oh, yeah. And I listened to that. So good. Yeah. So a caller c- called in about there being some kind of um, irritation, conflict going on in his or her family, and the caller wanted to help in some way deal with this or manage it or calm it. And he suggested that the caller imagine themselves to be transparent and allowing the anxiety or the tumult in the room to just move through them as if Mm. they were transparent, to be a space for it. Mm. And so I think that's, that's one thing we can each do by tapping into our core selves, doing what we can to ground ourselves and take stock of what's happening for us 
and just set the intention to to be a non-judgmental space for whatever's playing out to play out yes and it's so like it's it's one of those things that sounds easy but it's really hard and i like this reminds me of a situation where i walked into a facility and i was gonna go work with a patient but i got stopped in the hallway by two family members who had flown in from out of state to check on this person and see what was going on. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm just walking down the hallway, like I'm on a mission to go into this room and do this other thing. So already it was an interruption to what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And then they, they proceeded to list like all of their frustrations about the facility, about the food, about the nursing staff, about the bed, about the room, about the bathroom. And it was just like this huge list that I had no control over. And I think in the moment, like I could feel my blood pressure rise and I was like, oh my gosh, like there's so much that they don't understand about how these facilities work and how the, how the system works and how the nursing mm -hmm. staff works and a lot of what they're going through is just their perception based on the hour that they've spent in this building or whatever and like i i wanted to just be really defensive and that was my first reaction and then i was like okay like what if i just stand here and what if i just listen and like i don't even really respond like i just i just listen and be there and nod my head and say gosh and yeah and that kind of thing mm -hmm. and you could tell like by the end of the conversation there was no resolution like there were no problems solved but they they felt like they just felt so much better from that conversation mm -hmm. and it's like okay like i can't fix everything i can't you know solve the universal problem of skilled nursing facility issues <laughs> But, like, I can be here and I can be present and I can just listen. And I love that image of, like, being a transparent person where it's flowing through you. Like, I don't ha it doesn't have to sit there and settle inside of me and I don't have to have all this right. resentment about it. I can just be that vessel, be that space, let it go, move on. That's a great example of that. Um, it's helpful to keep in mind that all of that stuff that's that you experience coming out of that, that family or those family members probably come down for them to fear or grief mm -hmm. or uncertainty just you know so if we can see through what how it looks on the surface and realize this person is yeah. suffering too and yeah it's not about the food yeah the it's about something bigger yeah and hold a compassionate space for them like you did just to let it out mm -hmm. i think none of us can really hear until we feel heard mm -hmm. and it sounds like in that example you you gave them the chance to be heard and nothing got fixed really but you hearing them made a huge difference mm -hmm. and i would just like to clarify that that was <laughs> like a nice moment for me i am not always in that place where i'm like oh i can totally listen to you but at the same time 
I'm realizing and learning that the more that I take care of myself, the more that I do what I need to do to feel grounded, the more strength I have to do that consistently with people. Mm -hmm. So just to touch back on what you're saying about self-care. Yeah. One of the things that I do in a life coaching relationship um, and that was done with me when I started as a coach was an exercise to help somebody really identify five key values. And mine have switched a lit, little bit, shifted in my life. But um, I think a lot of people, when you ask them what their values are, they might like, oh, well, kindness, uh, honesty. But with a little bit deeper exploration, words come out that are more unique to the person. And for me, my five words, when I just take a minute to reflect on those words, kind of let the essence of them seep in, that's a really good way for me to ground myself um, when mm -hmm. I feel like I'm in an unstable place or if I feel like I'm just not quite with it in the given moment or I don't know what I'm doing, where I'm going. Mm -hmm. um, Do you have those five words? Can you share them? Um, mine are stillness, trust, authenticity, compassion, and connection. Yeah, and words are, like, words are in themselves grounding. Like, it's, it's almost a tangible thing that you can reach out to. Yeah. The Therapy Insights Podcast is supported by Therapy Fix. Every month, a team of licensed and practicing clinicians work together across the country to comb through the latest research and create engaging, expertly designed handouts, interventions, and resources. My name is Chloe and I live in Burlington, Vermont. I am a speech pathology clinical fellow and I subscribe to Therapy Fix because I wanted to have monthly material that would challenge my patients and monthly material that would be different from what we've been working on prior. One of my favorite things I've received in a Therapy Fix was the literature. I really enjoy having reviews come to me instead of having to dig through a bunch of research and trying to figure out what is good and good quality literature. So this is a great way to stay up to date on everything that is going on and also in a very quick format. Learn more and subscribe at therapyinsights.com. And are the, you sent me some graphics for the eight essentials. Is that something that I can share with people or is that copyrighted? Um, it's, it may be copyrighted. These were slides from the training that I did, uh, grief and end of life coaching training with coaching at end of life. But, um, like if I credit them, yeah, I think if you credit them, okay. those are fine. Okay. I think that it's, it's just the reason I shared them with you is because I think it's just good good points for all of us when we're when we're with people who are grieving or facing end of life 
Mm-hmm. And, and do you mind just, oh, sorry. Do you want me to say them since we're on yeah, audio? Yeah, could you go through them a little bit? I mean, you, you're welcome to just read them as a list or if you want to say anything about any particular one. Okay. Well, there's some overlap between them, but I'll start with the eight essentials for coaching people who are grieving. One is provide a safe space, a safe place. Two, ride the roller coaster with them. And that speaks to the variety of emotions that come up for someone who's grieving. Um, You know, they may be experiencing deep sorrow at some points, anger at some points, resentment at some points, relief at some points, joy at some points. So just staying with them with whatever they're feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, inviting them to tell their story. And I think this is this is something that might come in handy for some of you when you're working with somebody. I know I, I just healed from a broken foot and so I was seeing a physical therapist mm-hmm. regularly for quite a while. And we talked about all kinds of things while we were doing therapy. So um, there may be an opportunity if you know that they're going through something, whether it's a a loss of a capacity or an accident they experienced or maybe something in their life that's bothering, just you know, invite them to talk about it. Tell me mm-hmm. about what this is like or tell me about your mom who just died. Mm-hmm. Normalize their experience is number four. Um just letting them know it, you know, whatever you're feeling, it's it's not unusual. You're not crazy. Um, somebody might worry that they're losing their memory because they just can't hang on to things as much, and they're in the middle of grief. So, right. reminding them that that's that's common experience. That it's okay. Mm-hmm. Giving them the time they need. Silence is a really important piece of what a grief coach offers. In a grief coaching session, the coach should be speaking no more than 20% of the time. Mm. Um, The client could be talking all the rest of the time, but there's also an intention to just allow a lot of space. Right. Sometimes you can... Right, which is so uncomfortable for (laughs) many of us. (laughs) Oh, I know. I remember... I don't know whether it was, I don't know what kind of context, but where they might allow a moment of silence to remember something. And it literally is just a moment, but people can't handle more than a minute of it, it seems like. But silence is where somebody can sink deeper. If I'm working with somebody by phone and I can't really see what's going on for them, silence gives time for whatever is happening to 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 um, be explored more deeply mm-hmm. yeah so giving them the silence they need and six is be the student not the expert mm. and that's a key difference between counseling and coaching as well as that and coaching the coach is considered a partner following mm-hmm. the client's lead the coach sees the client as the expert in their own life and the client or the coach's role is to help the person who's being coached to tap into their own wisdom. Mm. Discovering their new normal is number seven. 
which has to do with the way loss impacts us, that what was normal before isn't normal anymore. And there's a process of integration that needs to happen as they incorporate what this means for them. Somebody who's lost the use of a limb is going to have a new normal. They're going to be integrating that loss and their life will be a di will be different. Right. So, and celebrating their growth is number eight. And then for coaching the dying, some of these are the same. Number one is provide a safe place to be present with them. Three, invite them to tell their story. Four, discover what's most precious to them. I want to come back to that one. Uh, five, offer the exploration of reconciliation. What what is unresolved in their life that they might want to look at? Are there people they want to connect with? People they need to forgive? People who they want forgiveness from? Six is normalize their experience. Seven, be the student, not the expert. And eight, discover their relationship to hope. Uh, four was discover what's most precious to them. And that thought came to mind when you were talking about families who, who may be pushing for measures that aren't really helping the patient anymore. Mm -hmm. And because I haven't been in the situations you all are in, I don't know if this might work or how it might work, but um, helping family members see what's, what's most important to their loved one, maybe asking them, you know, what, what do you think are their values? What things might they say give quality of life? Mm -hmm. And through that conversation, perhaps them coming to a, um, a realization that whatever measures they're pushing for have more to do with their own fears or need for more time than they do with mm -hmm. what quality of life means for the patient. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, um, looking back at the conversation project and advanced directives, and I just wanted to make mention that um, when I got an advanced directive form at the hospital, I compared it with the five wishes advanced directive form that I had seen had seen used in hospices I've worked at, and I was surprised at how um, minimal the advanced directive that the hospital uses was. This was St. Pat's. So just to let people know that there are advanced directives out there like five wishes that allow for much more personalization and that go into the realms of what you would you like for your comfort? What would you like for your your soul, your spiritual comfort? And mm. mine, you know, I'm writing in that please don't, please don't um, have the TV on. Please don't put a big fluffy pillow under my head. You know, things I know that mm -hmm. if I weren't able to speak for myself would just be driving me crazy. There's also add-ons, not with five wishes, but I've seen New York Times actually had a link to an add-on um, 
that you could uh, attach to an advanced directive that specified more specifically what you will like you would like to happen if you get dementia and it breaks down that into three levels of dementia and I think that's fabulous my my mother-in-law has advanced Alzheimer's she's been bedridden for four years now and her husband who's a retired physician is her caretaker and he keeps giving her antibiotics he's considered putting her on a feeding tube all these things that um, my husband is pretty certain she never would have wanted mm. but she's not able to mm. communicate these things anymore and there's right. nothing in her advanced directive that says if I get to this level of dementia please right. don't do this or uh-huh huh I didn't know there was one specifically for dementia that's I can fantastic. send that to you in a link um, okay and I'll put it in the show notes okay Okay, so there's the question about mindfulness techniques. So, I mean, I have a pretty like basic understanding of mindfulness, but I didn't know there were like different official techniques, or maybe there aren't. I don't know. Can you talk about that and if you have any insight on how to yeah. guide people on mindfulness in healthcare settings? Um, I came across this yesterday. It's on psychcentral.com, P-S-Y-C-H, central.com, backslash blog, backslash one-minute-mindfulness-exercises. And um, I really liked them. One is just a yawn and stretch for 10 seconds every hour. Do a fake yawn if you need to. Just notice how the yawn interrupts your thoughts and feelings. Then stretch really slowly for at least 10 seconds. Uh, three hugs, three big breaths. Hug someone tight and take three, three big breaths together. Stroke your hands, lower or close your eyes. Take the index finger of your right hand and slowly move it up and down on the outside of your fingers. Once you have mindfully stroked your left hand, swap and let your left hand stroke the fingers of your right. Mindfully eat a raisin, just slowing down and noticing what it tastes like, what it smells like. Um, the, the value words I mentioned earlier, that's a way that I use mindfulness for myself. Just sitting, saying those words either out loud or quietly to myself or asking myself, what would it mean for me to be still right now? What would it mean for me to be authentic right now? That kind of question. Um, was your question aimed more at how do you help clients to be mindful? Uh, I don't know, because that was a listener question, but I feel like, I feel like there, I'll put that link in the show notes and there's just so many different mindfulness, I guess you can call them techniques, right? <laughs> that you can offer as a clinician that are, that don't take a whole session to do like what you were just talking mm -hmm. about. But did you have anything else to add about mindfulness? Well, I, I think mindfulness can get 
can get um, congested with with ideas about what it looks like and that it, that it has to be something mm -hmm. specific like meditation. If you're meditating, it has right. to be in the lotus pose and you have to pay attention to your breath and you have to have your spine straight and all that. Um, for me, it's helped a lot to relax my definitions of those and just to, mm -hmm. for it just to mean noticing what's present for me right now. Mm -hmm. So yeah. uh, I've noticed as I'm, learning how to walk again on my foot, my pace has slowed down significantly while the stiffness and everything relaxes. And it's become kind of a mindful meditation, just noticing what it feels like to plant each foot on the floor or on the ground as I'm walking. Noticing, okay, uh, I'm in the middle of a meeting and I want to be mindful. Just what does it feel like to have my body supported by this chair? What does the fabric of my sleeves feel like against my arms? What sounds am I hearing? What things are am I thinking about? Just so whatever is happening in the moment can be material for mindfulness. Just bringing mm -hmm. your focus 100% sure. to whatever that is. Mhm. Mm yeah, especially when rehabilitation therapy focuses so much on the body there's a lot of opportunity to mm. connect the body with the mind and the moment yeah I think. um but i definitely want to get in before your battery dies hear your story and how you got involved in this work and if you have a number one piece of advice for those working through grief loss and end of life realities well, I'd say um, to pull all of my work together, the thing that ties them together, the thing that I'm passionate about is compassionate listening and presence. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's kind of spiritual practice, I suppose. Um, I'm never going to be perfect at it, but it's the thing that I feel like of all that I can bring to somebody in any context, whether it's a conversation with my friend or my mother or a client, um, listening deeply from a place of compassion. Um, so my experience with that counselor early on, 30 years ago or so, that was a one of the first experiences I had with somebody who could do that. And I've had subsequent experiences with other people. But that one led me to... to to study compassionate communication, um, co-counseling, then life coaching, um, grief coaching. I, I got involved with hospice work after a friend of mine who was in her 80s died and she didn't have, she didn't die an ideal death. She died alone in a hospital after an open heart surgery and a triple, a triple bypass and an aneurysm repair, n neither of which should have happened. Um, the physicians should have talked to her and given her options. Instead, she was, as soon as they saw the aneurysm, they popped her into a ambulance, took her up to Spokane, Washington, and she went through these surgeries in the middle of a winter that closed the highway between there and where all of her mm. friends were. Um, and so when she died, I, I, my heart was broken that she died like she did. And I started volunteering for hospice. Mm. 
to help be part of what might bring more dignity and more support to people at end of life. Mm -hmm. um, and then I found out about the grief and end of life coaching program. And th that to me felt, felt like uh, an approach to coaching that was more in line with who I am. I've never been one to really lay my life out and strategize and make plans to get from point A to point B. My mm -hmm. intent has been more to sink into my moment and find out what what's coming up from the core of who I am, what am I inspired to do, and, and take steps according to that. So I like that, yeah. So that deep listening and the connection to self um, to me was more, was modeled more in the grief and end of life coaching than life coaching. Although I'm pulling them together, finding ways mm -hmm. to um, merge the two, because I think for anyone, a, a real sense of fulfillment in life comes from living a life that is authentic and in aligned, alignment with what's most important to us. And many people don't know what's most important to them, where they think something is, but when they really they think, dig deep, yeah. they realize, wow, that really isn't who I am. So, right. Yeah, all the people pleasers of the world, including me, unite <laughs> <laughs> and know that maybe what we want is not what other people want for us. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, I think the number one piece of advice would be kind of a reiteration of what I've already said in a different language. When I was studying marriage and family therapy and looking at various models of, of doing therapy, what I realized was that the, the active ingredient in any effective therapy is presence. Mm -hmm. It's not so much knowing a specific tool or a model and being able to follow that and use that um, exactly right. It's, it's being present. Um, so yeah, and that ties in with, you, you mentioned books and I, I'm going to recommend two books because they're written by the same person and they're both little. So if you put them together, they're about the thickness of one book. <laughs> so, um, they're by James E. Miller and one is called the art of listening in a healing way. And the other one is called the art of being a healing presence. And I've used these a lot in training hospice volunteers, but they're not specifically for hospice uh, practitioners. They're for any, for any of us who are in caring relationships and, and want to be there in a more healing way. Awesome. Okay, I'll put those in the show notes as well. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your time. Thank you what else, for what else do you, me. Yeah, is it, did you want to say anything else? I'm just cognizant of your battery life and the fact that I've taken <laughs> almost an hour and a half out of your day. Well, I've enjoyed this. It's been good for me um, to practice speaking about what I do and, and great to connect with you and find out what you're doing. And I just want to put out a big gratitude to, to all of you who work with patients like you do um, I've experienced the benefit of it now in my own life from my foot and as a child with speech therapy and um, 
you've, you're, you've got your hands right in there with people and you're in an optimal place to, to make a real difference in their lives, whatever they're going through. And so thanks for the work you do and the heart that goes into the work you do. Thanks, everybody, for joining us on that conversation. And thank you, Katrina, for all of the thoughts and perspective and insight. And I am going to include all of the references that we talked about in the show notes. Um, And in particular, you can check out Katrina's work at katrinamakaya.com. And I'll also include links to the Conversation Project, the Five Wishes, the Advanced Directive for Dementia, the One Minute Mindfulness Exercises, the conversations between Oprah and Eckhart Tolle, and The Art of Being a Healing Presence. That book, I'll have the link in there. And then also links to International, the International Coaching Federation and Coaching at End of Life if you want to explore um, the certifications that they have to offer. So be sure to check out the show notes, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>